18 to 20 of you are ready for the word. So the rest of you can just come along. Maybe you'll pick it up as we go. You know, you'll get into it. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 2, continuing on with our series called Great and Amazing. And let me ask you this question as we get going here. Uh, who likes watching sunsets? Who likes watching sunsets? Right, and, and uh, here's a picture of a sunset that I took in uh, Bonaire in the Southern Caribbean um, back in 2019. And, and I think it's, it's kind of even a silly question, who likes watching sunsets? Because it's more like, who doesn't? I mean, sunsets are just awesome. And, and I saw this quote this week, which just kind of struck me, never thought about it this way. But, but George MacDonald said, said this, um, how strange this fear of death is. We are never frightened at a sunset. How strange this fear of death is. We are never frightened at a sunset. The sun sets every single night, and with it, by the way, the hope of life. We have no guarantees, as it said, that the sun is going to rise the next day. If it does not rise the next day, all hope of life is gone, and we are doomed. Yeah, we don't fear the setting sun. We stare at it with amazement. We set out our deck chairs to watch it. We take photos. We share the experience with loved ones and friends. It would absolutely seem foolish to fear the setting of the sun. And that's the attitude that we as Christians should have with regard to death. There should be, as the worship chorus says, no fear in death. And yet we often fear the end. We live our lives, in fact, in a way that would seem to say that we fear the end. We shouldn't. Not as the followers of Christ. So as I said, we're in Revelation here. and We're looking at the second of seven letters that are in chapters 2 and 3. These are letters written from Jesus to seven very real first century churches that are located uh, we're located in Asia Minor, modern-day uh, Turkey today, and this letter to the church in Smyrna, this second letter, in this letter, the believers are urged not to fear, not even to fear death in the face of intense persecution. Even if that persecution led to death, they should not fear it as the followers of Christ. Now, in some ways, this passage, this letter becomes very difficult for us to kind of grasp the intensity of the situation, to fully understand what they were going through. We're not facing persecution as they did. And yet we are still being encouraged, nevertheless being encouraged to trust Jesus rather than fear anything in life. Trust Jesus rather than fear anything, fill in the blank, whatever it happens to be. For them, it's persecution. And so let's look at the letter here. This is Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. I'll read this, and then I'm going to pray for us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, I am very grateful for everything that's happened in this service so far. I'm grateful for that time of worship, of lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful, Father, for Tyler and Amber and for their willingness to uh, give uh, these weeks and to pour into our partner church, uh, partner churches in Scotland. Father, I'm grateful for the reading of your word, and we know that in this book of Revelation, there's a blessing attached to the reading of your word. And God, I pray that you would bless us. You would bless us with your very presence, that your Holy Spirit would be working in this room. This isn't a TED Talk. It's not a lecture. God, we want to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God, do that work now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do we have more than 18 to 20 with us now? All right, here we go. On the, uh, on the screen and in your notes, Jesus is the first and the last and was raised from the dead, and so we must not fear. Now, before we get into the actual outline, the points that we have to look at today, the letter starts um, as the first letter did with this uh, address, this ascription to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last. We, we, we get this description of Jesus that heads up each of these letters. Everything that Jesus is going to write to them is rooted in the truth that he's teaching about himself. And in this case, these are the words of the first and the last. These are the words of, of God who is the originator of everything, God who is the end of all things. And we need to understand that as their origin and as the end, that everything in between those two things is no less in his control than the beginning and the end of all things. Everything is under God's complete and sovereign control. And I hope we believe that at, 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 a, at a base level, as we look at everything else, we have to believe that God is in control. Beyond that, he reminds them that he died and came to life, crucified and resurrected. Now, they know this already. This is the thing that's transformed them and the thing that's brought them together in the church in Smyrna. It's the gospel that they believe and accept it. And Jesus Christ's victory over sin and death stands as his resume. This is his, he's putting forth his, his CV, his credentials. This is who I am. This is what I've done. And this is why you need to hear the thing that I'm saying to you in this letter. And Jesus is compelling them with this. Look down to verse 10 for a moment and just underline these three words. Do not fear. Not so much a command, not so much a, a, an imperative for fearful people. It's not helpful to just command them to not fear. But more of an exhortation, an encouragement, something that's acknowledging, in fact, this is your current state. I understand it, and I want to move you to a better place. Literally, do not fear could be translated, stop being afraid. They're already facing it. And Jesus is entering into their situation and encouraging them not to fear. 
And fear is such an enemy to us. Why? Because fear is an emotion. It's a strong emotion, in fact. That God created us as emotive beings. We have emotion. They're from him. Emotions are good. But emotions should never lead. Never, never, never lead. Never govern our actions. And fear is a strong emotion that can lead us in a certain direction and and impairs our rationality, impairs our thinking. In fact, we could say that fear fuels other emotions. Fear fuels anger and rage. Fear fuels even worry and and anxiety, which these are like the seeds of fear in our lives. The first emotional reaction, in fact, in the garden, when sin entered into the world, the first emotion was fear. We hid ourselves. We were afraid. And everything that came after that, all the sins that have gripped this world are rooted in this fear that we have as human beings. And into that, Jesus says to us, whatever our situation is, we know what Smyrna's was. We're going to hear more about it, but whatever our situation is, whatever you're fearful of today, Jesus is saying, stop being afraid. So again, here's what we're going after in this message. Jesus is the first and the last. He was raised from the dead, and so we must not fear And we'll see this first. We must not fear our current difficulties. Jesus says in verse 9, these two words, I know. He says, I I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know. This is intimate knowledge. It's It's an awareness of everything they're going through. God is not some detached God who's wound things up and allowed it to play out and stands distant from us. We heard in chapter one that that he's the one walking among the lampstands. He's the one walking among the churches. He knows. He knows their tribulation, it says, their trials, their troubles. He knows their poverty, but he says they're actually rich. He says he knows the slander that they're having to endure. That's actually the word, if you look, if you have the ESV and you look down to the footnote, it's actually the word blaspheme. He knows that people are blaspheming them, defaming them. Now listen, Jesus is very interested in this because when you blaspheme God's people, you blaspheme God. When you defame God's people, you defame God. And all of this coming from, and here's the source of the persecution, all of this coming from people who say that they are Jews when he says that, what he means is they're, they're believing that they are God's people. We're God's people. They had lost that at the crucifixion of Christ. Who say that they are Jews, they say they're God's people, and Jesus says, you are not God's people, but in fact, you're a synagogue of Satan. Uh, no punches pulled by Jesus, right? And he just lays them out. You're a synagogue of Satan. Now, don't miss the double irony that's going on here. At ground level, it looks like the Christians are poor, 
and the persecutors are in the place of power and influence as God's own people. But the heaven reality is that the Christians are in fact rich, according to Jesus, and the persecutors are not God's people, but Satan's. It's a complete reversal. They have it wrong in every possible way. Now, a historical note here that helps us understand exactly what's going on in Smyrna with this level letter is that uh, Jews enjoyed freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. Christians did not. There came a, a moment in history where the Jews said, finally, because Christians would still tend to gather in the temple in Jerusalem until 70 AD when it was destroyed, they would still gather in synagogues and seek to engage in discussion because, of course, Christianity flows from the fulfillment of prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. They would go to the synagogues and seek to reason with them, but then all Christians were expelled from all of the synagogues. Then some Jews, not all, some uh, went a step further to seek to discredit the church before Roman officials, not wanting to lose their own special status with Rome. Uh, they decided, you know what we'll do? We'll expose the Christians because they might be threatening our thing. And so what's happening in Smyrna is that these Jews are acting as informants to the Romans and turning in Christians. Beyond that, there was other pressures. Uh, Smyrna was a center for the, for, for the worship. It was a major city in Asia Minor and in the Roman Empire. It was a center for worship of Roman and Greek gods. If you were listening in high school, I know that's um, not a guarantee. Uh, you'll remember the names Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, Artemis, all had temples. Many others had temples in the city of Smyrna. And so Christians, here's, here's what happened, because Christians worshipped an invisible God that had no temple and had no um, idols, Christians were, uh, were accused, wait for it, they were accused of being atheists. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't worship any of the established gods, as illogical as that sounds. But that reinforces a principle that we already know, and the principle is this, that the ones who control the narrative, the ones who are in power control the narrative, and they decide what's true and what's not in any given society. Anyways, that was the root of the persecution. And Buist Fanning said this, one of the commentators um, on this passage said this, Christ reminds them, however, of the paradoxical status of God's people in a sinful world. They are often poor in this world's wealth, outward material fleeting wealth, but rich inwardly, spiritually, and eternally. And that's what he's talking about when he says that they're rich. At whatever level then that we seek to apply this, we have to understand the principle. We must not fear any of our current difficulties, no matter what they are. Anything that we're facing. And the reason is because Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the originator of all things. Jesus will be the conclusion of all things. And Jesus is in charge of all the things that happen between the beginning and the end. And if that is true, I need not fear any of my circumstances, any of my current difficulties. I also need not fear them because he died. And, I mean, talk about a difficulty. You're dead. But he came back to life. The firstborn of the dead, the scriptures tell us. And so our, our perspective has to be the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. Our eyes have to be fixed on him. And in particular, if we're facing these difficulties, specifically because we're Christians, we have to live this way. There should be no current difficulty that we are facing 
that should cause us fear that we believe is a threat to us, a real threat to who we genuinely are. Because these threats simply do not exist. So that speaks to our present, our current difficulty. But secondly, we should not fear our future path. We think, we think that we would like to know the future. We think that we would like to know the future. But really, we would only like to know the future if it is a good future. And that pertains to this letter because the folks in Smyrna received advance notice of their future. So excited. We're going to find out what comes up next, guys. We're going to get to know the future. And Jesus says, hashtag be careful what you ask for. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Like none of that sounds good, does it? Now, what I noticed in this, in this, um, in this phrase, in this verse, that we see both the devil's purposes and God's purposes in the one verse. And this is a wonderful thing to note and just to keep in our minds when we're going through difficult seasons or even when we're going through seasons of blessing. Please understand, Satan has his purposes, which are to get you to abandon your faith through blessing or difficulty. In every circumstance you go through in life, Satan has his purposes and it is to get you to abandon your faith. And God also, in every circumstance, has his purpose, and that is to test our faith and to grow it. Jesus goes on to say, and for 10 days, you will have tribulation. You go, well, 10, that's not so bad. Just knock those off the calendar. 10, we're at nine. Tomorrow, it's all over. Only it's not 10, is it? It's revelation. Numbers are going to mess with us all through this book. Just telling you, but it's a very figurative uh, number. God conveys a message here that the tribulation is, it's 10, it's temporary. It's not 11, it's 10. But then 10 being a number of perfection, it's a perfect length of time for this persecution and this suffering. The perfect number of days to accomplish God's will. Now again, I, like you, want to know the future, but not if it involves hardship. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the make my life better program. Any other confessors? I can only assume the rest of you are on the make my life worse program. Go ahead and pray that tonight. I dare you. Bring it, God. Is that what you're praying? You people that didn't raise your hand? Just bring it. Now, I'm on the Make My Life Better program, but here's what Grant Osborne said. There are no promises of an easy life in Scripture. None, not one, zero. Not on this side of eternity. Instead, there are promises of divine comfort and blessing in the midst of suffering. And so if you're praying to God, God, bring it, because what I want from you, what I want is comfort, what I want is blessing, and if the best way to get that is for me to go through difficulties, then bring it. That's a Christian life. But we're so soft. 
I mean, how am I to identify with the believers in Smyrna? The biggest problem that Cheryl and I have faced so far this weekend is that we couldn't find Duncan Hines lemon cake mix. (laughs) And we had to go to four grocery stores before we found it, and then it was Betty Crocker. I can't identify with these people. In almost everywhere, in almost every way, compared to all the different eras in history, if you look back through history, we in Western society in the 21st century have it easy. We have wealth, we have food. We only went to four grocery stores to find lemon cake mix. There's about 40 other places we could have checked in this city alone. We have peace. We have health care. Despite our common, common complaining about all of these things and Lord, help us. It's a provincial election season, so we'll hear all the complaints multiple times over, over and over again. We don't really have that much to complain about, do we? In the Western church, forget about society, the Western church, we have it easy. We have nice buildings, heat and air conditioning, nice sound systems, all of it, all the tech stuff. We have full staff. We have the freedom to worship. I mean, I was slammed hard to the ground when I heard this quote. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions, and today the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Just shut her down. So what if God revealed a future to us and it wasn't by our standard a good reveal, but instead prophesied hardship and persecution for us? Would you be okay with that, Christian? Would you still come? Identify? Would you be part of it? Let's let's lock in some principles that are going to help us manage the future, no matter what it is. Here's a few things if you want to write these down to prepare for whatever the future holds, whether it's persecution or increased blessing, whatever it is. I will take nothing I have now for granted. I will take nothing I have now for granted. What I have today is a gift from God, amen? Everything I have today, everything that helped me get here this morning is a gift from God. I don't believe I deserve any of it. I don't believe that anything I have in my life, I have earned none of it. Nor do I believe that I have to have these things to be complete as a Christian. Nor do I believe that we have to have all the blessings that we have as a church in order to be a church. Don't need a website. Don't need a building. Don't need a big staff. Don't need any of these things to be a church. So I'm going to take nothing I have now for granted. Secondly, I will not exaggerate my current situation, my current difficulties. We are so good at exaggerating our situations. 
We are not currently living in Canada in the 21st century in a time of persecution. We are not. I won't pretend that I'm facing what believers are facing in other parts of the world. People today in parts of India, in northern Nigeria, in, 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 in North Korea, in Iraq and Iran, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ put imprisonment and death in front of themselves just to gather with God's people today. So frankly, we all just need to shut up. I will not exaggerate my current situation. And by the way, when I do exaggerate it, when real persecution comes, I'm devastated. I've set myself up to fail. Here's a third one. I'll take my faith seriously now. So the best way to guarantee that you're going to be standing in the face of be able to stand in the face of persecution to come is that you're standing right now in the face of blessing. A strong Christian walk now is the best preparation for what may come next. So how are you doing in your walk with Christ? See, persecution is going to reveal who's genuinely saved anyway. There's lots of people that are part of churches like ours that aren't actually saved. Persecution will reveal those who are genuinely saved and, and it's also going to reveal who's, who's here only for a little bit of religion every week, just enough to tick the Jesus box for the week. I mean, it's a fact that the pandemic has already sifted out people who were simply observers of Christianity. If you couldn't make it through the pandemic, watching, teaching, and worship on video and getting together with your small group virtually. And like, if you couldn't make it through that, I'm telling you, you won't make it through persecution. This isn't true for everyone. Everybody's situation is different, but if some Christians find it too hard to get back to serving right now, I mean, I checked in with Jeannie before this service. We have to combine kindergarten through grade five class because not enough people are willing to serve and harvest kids. I mean, you all have a really easy life. If you can't sign up to serve and harvest kids, what makes you think you're going to stand in the face of someone wanting to arrest you to come and worship Jesus? Some Christians find it too hard to get back to serving, get too hard to get back to giving, too hard to get back to worship, too hard to get back to fellowship post-pandemic, to get together with their small group. What makes us think, if these things are hard, that we will stand in the face of increased and intense, very real persecution in the future? If that is you, you are deluded and probably not saved. So lock these things in. We should not fear the future, no matter, no matter what it is, because our walk with Christ, who is the first and the last, who died and was raised from the dead, is our Lord and Savior. That was heavy.
Bet you're glad we only have one more. Finally, we should not fear our eventual death. So Jesus says to them, while still uh, talking about uh, the future uh, persecution, that they should be faithful unto death. There was the very real possibility that many of them would be imprisoned, but some would in fact be executed for their faith. And when Jesus says this, he's not speaking in a vacuum. In the opening line of the letter, he told us his credentials included that he died and came to life. Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was slandered. Jesus was persecuted, maligned, falsely accused, conspired against, beaten, abused, and nailed to a cross. He was murdered by the state at the behest of religious leaders who were corrupt. So when Jesus says, be faithful unto death, when he levels that at us, he knows how to do that. He knows how to be faithful unto death. And as Christians, we're to identify with him in his suffering and death. And in fact, if you don't mind, like the rat, this is the rapid round right now. I'm going to give you five verses that build a case for this. Jesus said the first two, Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your, take up your instrument of execution, die to yourself and follow me. John 16, the world will have, in the world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In Acts 5, the apostles are now living this out. They've been arrested. They've gone to trial. But when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then this last two to Paul, Philippians 1, he writes to them, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then to Timothy the pastor of the church at Ephesus, he writes this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I, I listen, I read all of that. And I go like, I must be living my Christian life wrong. I mean, I've, I've given my life to serve Jesus Christ vocationally. And I look at these verses and I think I'm doing something wrong. That I haven't figured out the Christian life at all after all these years. And I'm asking myself the hard questions. Would I lose everything for Jesus? Would I die for Jesus? Would I say like the apostles that I counted, it, I counted myself worthy to be, to be flogged, to be imprisoned, to be questioned, to to be killed for the sake of Christ? See, somehow we've reduced our Christianity to palatable little portions. I'm going to attend a worship service. I'm going to go to a small group. I'm going to serve one, once a month on a team. I'm going to give an offering that doesn't break the budget. I'm going to read the Bible once in a while. I'm going to pray for my food. And that's the extent of the expression of faith for, for many people, if not most professing Christians. 
Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross. Jesus said, lay down your life. If we can, if we can understand this, even in some small measure, if we could even just be, be growing in it through the entirety of our time walking with Christ, then we get the reward because this is what our eventual death, no matter how it comes, this is what it leads to. If we do all of this, if we live this out as best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, the promise comes at the end of verse 10, I will give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you glory in eternity. Doesn't matter how hard your life is here, you're going to get something that is going to make this life seem like as nothing. And certainly, we'll believe that it was all worth it. Verse 11, the encouragement comes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, this is going to be so good. This is exactly what you need to hear when everything in your life is hard. This final incredible guarantee comes, the one who conquers, the one who in the context of this letter, the conqueror is the one who does not fear. The conqueror is the one who is faithful unto death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be hurt by the first death. That's physical death. That's going to happen to everybody here. Everybody's going to suffer the first death unless Jesus comes back. But to have the guarantee that we will not be hurt by the second death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God, that second death, can't touch this because I'm in Christ. That we're assured of the crown of life by Jesus himself. And if we get this, if we really understand that this is what's in front of us, Guaranteed, we will not fear anything. There'll be no room for fear in our lives. It's going to get crowded out by the intensity of our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of this letter. And I want to just close with this and... We have a baptism coming up in a moment. We're going to worship some more. But, but talking about this church in, in Smyrna and thinking about persecution, I need to introduce you to a man named Polycarp. Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna, the bishop of this church, and he was martyred in AD 156. He was 86 years old when he was, mur- when he was martyred. Throughout his life, he had relentlessly challenged uh, false teaching and worked his entire life to build up and lead the church. When the letter to Smyrna and the revelation was delivered to the city and to the church of Smyrna, Polycarp would have been in the church and in his 20s. 60 years later, he was the bishop and bishop, elder, pastor, those are interchangeable words for this office in the church And so he was the bishop or the chief elder or the lead pastor of this church. And he was facing imminent arrest for being a Christian for the message that he had preached concerning the gospel. Now I'm reading a little bit here from an excerpt from Christian history, the links in the notes. Roman soldiers eventually discovered Polycarp's whereabouts and came to his door. And when his friends urged him to run, he's 86, 
I mean, I'm just... He might have been in shape, I don't know. When, it, when his friends urged him to run, Polycarp replied, God's will be done. And he let the soldiers in. And he was escorted to the local proconsul, Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. You'll be thrown to the wild beast. You'll be burned to the stake and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasted but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, he slyly added, cannot be quenched. Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped them. Leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And he prayed aloud, and the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. Polycarp did not fear. He was faithful unto death. He'd read it in the letter that Jesus sent the church 60 years prior. And I pray we will all be faithful unto death. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, it's really uh, difficult even to come to the end of a message like this and to know exactly what to pray. And I would offer only that your Holy Spirit would work in the heart of each one who's listening here in the room and on the live stream. Father, to stir in each of our hearts in the very unique way that you need to work. It was one thing for Smyrna, but for each of us, Father, we have a future we're concerned or afraid about. Father, we have current difficulties that are consuming our lives. Father, sometimes we think very little about the intensity of what it means to walk with you. And so God, continue to work. Thank you for your kindness and your patience, your grace toward us. But convict us, Holy Spirit. Show us where the change needs to take place. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.